0: Welcome to the Advocate with your host Nick Phillips. And now here's your host Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick, Nick Phillips, with you with another edition of the Advocate. This is a special edition since we've been talking about the uh, the virus that we're all watching—the uh, coronavirus—and we've been all staying at home and wearing masks and doing all kinds of things that we never dreamt we'd be doing. Uh, today is Sunday, April 19th, and I wanted to mention that date uh, because things are changing so fast. And I know this will be on the podcast, that what we talk about tonight will be important as of the 19th of April. With us uh, tonight, as we have once a month, is State Representative Dave Greenspan, who's going to share with us what's going on from Columbus, Ohio, and, and what uh, we should know and what we should be doing. Well, Representative David Greenspan, thank you, as always, for joining us. Well,
2: Nick, thank you for having me on again, and, and especially during during these times, I believe it's important that we we talk about the issue and get some of the facts out there and let folks know what's what's going on and and what um, at least from a state's perspective, you know where we are and what what we're trying to accomplish and uh, to help you know all Ohioans during these during these times.
0: Well, that that is so appreciated. You know, first off, uh, congratulations to the governor and the administration for. Uh, keeping the curve down as low as it is and making sure we don't run out of hospital space, ICU space, or ventilator space. And uh, we're we're getting through this probably as best as we could expect. Uh, and uh, we've been getting the governor's briefing every day at 2 o'clock and watching what's going on from a medical standpoint and from a numbers standpoint. Uh, from the legislative standpoint, uh, tell us uh, how do things look from your vantage point? Well, let, let, let me, if you don't mind, let me back
2: up and, and provide some context sure. to to some of the positive steps that the governor took. To, to your point, to keep our numbers down. Remember, we're the seventh largest state in population, and one of the last reports I saw were down in the, in the in the 30s as far as ranks as it comes to um, to deaths and, and hospitalizations and intensive care. So we, we, you know, we, we, we are far below, and, and this is a good thing for us, far below, um, where our national rank and population would, would traditionally think we would be. Um, the governor took, I think, four very bold steps in early on in curtailing the, uh, the spread. And, you know, keep in mind a, a traditional flu outbreak, which, is around 30,000 deaths nationally a year, and when we're taping the show, we, we may be close to 40,000 uh, with the coronavirus alone. So um, this this far exceeds the the normal flu outbreak. Um, the 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 thing to keep in mind: the governor, as I said, I believe did four things that were very important um, in curtailing this early on. Number one, and not not necessarily a very widely known event. Here in Cleveland, but widely known in Columbus is, is is by canceling the Arnold, which is which is the largest single sporting event in the world. It's larger than the Olympics insofar as spectators. I didn't know. Eighty thousand uh, 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 spectators and participants. I'm sorry, participants. There are over eighty thousand athletes that come in from from over a hundred countries. They were scheduled to come into Columbus, uh, right as this was starting to to take hold. The governor, by canceling that, and although it's a, it's a huge economic strain on, on the local economy and the state's economy, but that was a major event that, that I believe helped us as a state curtail the spread. One of the other things that the governor did um, was, and when he issued and when Dr. Acton issued the order to start closing down the bars, he did it just before St. Patrick's Day. And if you look at our surrounding states and states throughout the country that have had major St. Patrick's Day or other events, like Louisiana had Mardi Gras and they did not cancel Mardi Gras.
0: Uh-huh.
2: Um, you have you had you've had outbreaks three four weeks after those events. By doing that in the state of Ohio, by by asking the bars to shut down just before St. Patrick's Day, major rallying point for you know for socially from our state was I believe a very positive thing in order to curtail the spread. Of the coronavirus,
0: um,
2: dealing with the universities and the universities, um, the students did not come back from spring break. Um, if you think about how many hundreds of thousands of college students we have in our universities that would go down to other parts of the state and other parts of the world, uh, Mexico is is a is a hot spot now for for college students to go during spring break, as is Florida and Texas and, and, and the Gulf Coast area. Um, by not doing that, that to me was another major factor in keeping our numbers down. And the last one I want to talk about which which is somewhat um, draw is drawing some some consternation and right now we're in the midst of, of an extended voting period. Um, whether the 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 decision was solely based on controlling the spread at, at polling locations or as I was hearing as early as Sunday night I received a call from a colleague, in Franklin County, and they asked me how our, our poll worker situation was shaping up for Tuesday. And this is, so if the primary was the 17th, this call was on the 15th. And I said, you know, I'm not sure. Let me call. Why are you asking? And the response I got was, we're having poll workers call off in droves. We're not sure we can conduct a safe and secure election in Franklin County because we have so many people calling off. So I reached out and got a similar response here in Cuyahoga County. And I believe one of the major factors and and mildly touched on during the discussion of canceling the in-person voting but continuing the absentee voting has to do with the fact that that our poll workers who are largely seniors in the compromised category, uh, whether it be age or health or a combination of both, um, were really um, um, unable to and calling off. And so you very well may have shown up at your poll at 630 on Tuesday and found that it was closed. And it was closed because there were no poll workers and that in itself would have been a significant travesty for those who like myself I'm an in- person voter. if I would have gone to my polling location, I'm on the ballot this year and not been able to vote period and that be the last day to vote uh, it would have been it would have been um, an injustice so by by the um, Secretary of State and the governor at that point extending the day till June second Um, at least it gave voters an opportunity to not experience issues at the polls, but to continue their ability to to exercise their their rights to vote to do so. Now, the Secretary of State and the Governor used a June 2nd date. The legislature, when we came back into session on March 25th, um, we actually changed that date to April 28th. And let me provide some context as to why that date was changed to April 28th. The, the, um, at that time, you have to go back and put us where we were. So we're sitting at March, you know, 25th when we made this decision. Right. The Mm -hmm. the Democrat National Convention had its deadline for its delegates to be certified as May 18th. The Republican National Convention had its delegate deadline certification date as June 5th. The Secretary of State and, and ballots are allowed to be counted as long as they're postmarked after eight days well, seven days from the election. It's eight days from the day before the election. So any ballot that's postmarked prior to, say, April 28th in this example, or even, even let's use the date of June 2nd, eight days from June 1st were eligible to be counted. The problem was at the time, and we didn't know if the Democrat convention or the Republican convention were going to change their dates, Ohio would have missed both dates of cert- to certify its delegates each respective convention. So with that, if the June 2nd date was the date, it would have been possible that Ohio would not have any delegates to choose either party's nominee for president of the United States. So we looked at May 18th as the date the Democratic Convention needed their delegates certified. We backed up 21 days from that because by law, the Secretary of State has 21 days to certify the election. And that date was April 28th. And that's why the legislature, both the House and the Senate, unanimously voted to have the election conclude and be mail-in only, except in certain circumstances, on April 28th. So uh, also in in the law, in in the the bill that we passed, um, every registered voter in the state, whether you had already voted or not, was to receive a postcard with instruction as to how you can request an absentee ballot. And then once you did that and requested the ballot, a ballot was mailed to you. And remember, we couldn't mail out absentee ballots to every voter in the state because we don't know what type of ballot you want. Do you want a Republican ballot, a Democrat ballot or an issue issues only ballot? So you have to make the request so the board of election knows what to send you. So they sent you, you would receive the ballot and then the state paid for the return postage. So it cost you nothing. To vote in the election. Now, yes, you would have to put a stamp on the request for the ballot, just like you normally would in any other year if you're going to request an absentee ballot. But the ballot returned to you, unlike in past years, the ballot returned to the Board of Election. Your local board was postage prepaid. So that's that's why we did what we did, you know, as it related to the ballot. I'm kind of tying two issues together, right? I'm tying why I believe we have low rates. I think Ohioans did a great job in, in in social distancing and doing what was asked of us to do to prevent the spread, um, but also at the same time I wanted to explain at least four items I believe the governor and lieutenant governor acted appropriately in doing and so to protect our citizenry and one of which just happened to tie into the primary.
0: Well, very, very good because uh, watching this, it seems each step as each problem is recognized, addressed, and solved seems to be logical. Uh, I know there's always six or seven ways of solving a problem, but uh, so far everything seems to have been done in, in a very reasonable way. That puts us to, to where we are today. I think there are lives that have been saved here in Ohio. When you look at the original predicted spike in uh, cases and deaths, that uh, we certainly knocked that down quite a bit. So there are people who are around here in the state of Ohio who otherwise would not be here today. But that leads us now to maybe the next question, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about it. We have about a minute. Uh, and then we'll come back after our break and talk about the, the economic impact mm-hmm. of uh, basically staying home and essentially shutting down the business. And what, uh, what are some of the things you're seeing from, from that perspective? <laughs> Um, yeah, because I know- and, and, and and that's a great point, and,
2: and 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 clearly, the nation and and largely the world, um, you know, eighty four of one hundred and ninety three countries, and if you include Gaza and the Vatican, one hundred and ninety five nations, recognized or not, um, are impacted. Eight hundred eighty four of one hundred let's go to the high, one hundred ninety five nations around the world are impacted. By this virus, this isn't a localized Ohio issue or American issue or, or even continental issue. This is a global issue, and so our recovery in the state of Ohio and in our nation is something we can control. and And we'll talk more about this on the inside the break. Um, oh, very and good. We're going to take oh, we're going to take the steps Both to do that.
0: Them. Let's take our break now. We're talking to State Representative Dave Greenstand. From the Ohio Legislature here in the Cleveland area. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be right back after these words, so don't go away.
1: can't get no
2: can't
0: get no satisfaction. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate, the special edition of The Advocate, talking about the coronavirus. And we're talking to State Representative David Greenspan to bring us up to date on what's going on in Columbus and in the state of Ohio. So, Dave, thank you, as always, for joining us again. Oh, thank you. You know, we talked about the medical side and how successful Ohioans have been in following the recommendations of the scientific medical community by distancing themselves from each other, and uh, actually taking that typical uh, pandemic spike of many, many cases that would have overwhelmed our medical facilities and capabilities to flattening it out and spreading it out so we can handle it as it comes. Uh, But in doing that, we have that economic side, And, and these two sides are like the yin and the yang of what's going on, that you want to make sure everyone stays safe and you want to have everyone stay in their homes and not, uh, associate, uh, don't get closer than six feet, and so on. But on the other hand, we have a, a living and breathing economy that has to be attended to. and We have to be safe and prompt. How is that looking from your perspective? Yeah, and, and this this is
2: one of those, you know, we, we've never seen anything like this, right? Not no, from the last hundred years.
0: 100 those who have are, are deceased.
2: Yeah, yeah. And so, what what you what you we're dealing with here, and and you're right. You know, the, the science and, and the information is evolving. Um, we we know much more about this now. Remember, and and I was on a, a a webinar earlier in the week. The first known case of this disease is just about 110 days ago, and I believe the first known death is about 90 days ago, maybe 100 days ago. So this isn't necessarily like a a. a, a this is not a flu. This is this is beyond a, a, a traditional flu outbreak by the by the way in which it spread across the, the across you know the 184 countries I was talking about earlier. So we're learning as we're going. We are we're, we're learning more data now about the spread of this and, and the lethality of it. Um, you know, when when our country started going into this, it, you know, around the first, second week in, in March when it was really being widely discussed. If you, if you looked at that time, what was happening in Italy and in Spain uh, in particular, um, you know, pe- the people were dying in Italy at the rate of 1,000 a, a, thousand a day, and that was just in one region of Italy. That really wasn't widespread throughout the whole country. So decisions were made based on, on the best information you know, that was available at the time, and it proved to be very beneficial for us in Ohio in particular based on our numbers and where we are. Um, but it did have an economic impact. It does have an economic impact. The federal government stepped in with some programs, um, so, some, some programs that actually the unemployment um, program uh, providing $600 per person per week is, in addition to the state unemployment, is, is a solid program. But it's causing challenges in that it didn't put a trigger me- triggering mechanism that if your employer calls you back, you lose, you know, that benefit stops and you're expected to go back to work so we're dealing at the federal level with some of those types of issues um there are some things the federal government put in place to help small businesses and individuals cope through economically through these times uh, i was on a call i'm on the um ohio 2020 task force for economic recovery um appointed by the speaker of the house and there are 23 of uh, 24 of us in total um from all over the state all different backgrounds different industry experience different different constituencies uh, urban, rural, sub- suburban and so forth. And um we ha heard from the Ohio Restaurant Association uh that they that that eleven percent nationally of the restaurants have already notified them that they will not be reopening period at the end of this. Wow. And and you know those those are a lot of lost jobs. And we're gonna we're gonna need to address that just as we've been focused here in Ohio on and I serve on the Council of State Government's Midwest region uh, executive Committee and I co-chair with the senator out of Nebraska, the Economic Development Committee, and we actually are having uh, webinars as this is going on. The subject's changing now as a result of this, but the focus initially was on um, on getting our, our skilled workforce available for the growing economy, and we still will have a growing economy, but the transition of, from our committee focus is going to be. Not dealing with a four point four percent or three point eight percent state unemployment rate in Ohio, where my colleagues at in Nebraska, where they're at one and a half percent, or they were. Um, but how do we deal with a higher unemployment rate and reskill our, our our workforce? And so, those are some of the opportunities we're going to be dealing with as we come through this. Um, I, I'm encouraged that the governor is setting a May first date to reopen the economy. I believe it's based on data, and he's seeing a decline. We're, familiar with flattening the curve, he's seeing a flattening of the curve in a number of key indicators, which is giving him comfort in relaxing some of the executive orders. The president has come out with a three-phase approach, and depending where you are in, in the phases, gives you greater flexibility. And remember, the president's three-phase approach is a recommendation for states to follow. Um, but if you're, if, you have, if you've had 14 days and you meet certain criteria, you're in phase one if you have a greater you know date with declining numbers you're in phase two if you have a different set of criteria you're in phase three which is a full reopening of your local economy what what I would what i what I believe will happen as it relates to to the workplace and how we interact in general as we move through the next six to eight months um, is that we will see and the governor's strongly encouraging people to wear masks we'll see uh, social distancing. We'll see restrictions in, that we haven't seen before, uh, not only until we get a, a, which I believe what I'm seeing and reading, we're close to a protocol as to how to to um, provide uh, antibiotics and, and medications to individuals who may be infected. Uh, and until we get to a vaccine, uh, which could be 12 to 18 months away, is the latest data that we're seeing now, we're, we're going to see a change in how we interact with, with individuals. You know, shaking hands, and hugging, which has been a, a, a customary part of our, our culture, very well may be taking a back seat for a little while until we get our, our arms wrapped around how to, to ensure that we've totally, um, you know, controlled mm-hmm. this virus. You know, how we interact I, at restaurants yeah. and, 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 and oh, we're grocery stores.
0: We're definitely looking for a, a new normal when this is all over and uh, and, uh, things we're accustomed to are seeing things such as hurricanes and tornadoes and we see these disasters and and nothing on the scale of a pandemic uh, to this effect especially the economic uh, changes that it's causing and the disruption in the economy and uh, the situation with hurricanes and other types of disasters earthquakes and so on uh, they, they go through a recovery period and i was wondering um, we're talking about favorite restaurants closing yeah. the economy not everyone says it's not going to be like a light switch it's not just going to click on. Uh, is there being work done to come up with a comprehensive recovery plan on uh, how to economically try to recreate yeah. what we had back in january yeah
2: i be- I believe there is, and the governor obviously and and we're talking about we're on Sunday evening this weekend is working on a plan. That he he uh, plans on introducing, you know, in the coming week, uh, to deal with how do we restart the economy? And there are a number of things. It's not May first, the lights are turned back on, and everybody go back to work. You know, using the restaurant world uh, as as a, as a continued topic here. Um, I I spoke to a, a, the owner of a major restaurant group, and they have a dozen or so locations and 1,300 employees and the two concerns that he has is number one getting his employees back to work this this $600 federal unemployment issue um is a concern because some of these folks are calling their employees back and their employees are saying hey I'm not coming back I'm getting more making more money now collecting unemployment than I was making working and so that's a yeah an issue we, that's need to, you know, we need to address but the second issue with restaurants is they have no inventory you know their beer. If they serve beers, is is skunked. Their 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 perishable inventory is is has been discarded or given away, right? If it was early on, a lot of restaurant groups said they just they gave their their inventory to food banks and 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 you know organizations like that, food pantries and so forth. And uh, and it, it depending what the supply chain looks like, it may take may take two, three, four weeks for restaurants to be able to get their product inventory lined up and delivered, ready to go, so that they can even open their doors, assuming they can get their employees back. So and, and that, that holds true to a whole bunch if you think about institutions across across the country and across the state in particular, about how are they able to get back get get back to being able to function. Now a lot a lot of places um, you know we're able to continue to operate, folks operated from home, and I think you're gonna see a greater, you know, distance you know, I think work from home. Yeah, I think so.
0: I, I think I think we've all learned how to work from home. That's that's working well. Uh, we're talking to State Representative Dave Greenspan, who, who joins us once a month. And uh, Dave, I, I think we might ask you to come out again in a couple of weeks, not wait a month, just to get another update. How we're going I'd to be recover to. Uh, back in this. So, in any event, that's uh, Cong- Congressman, that's State Representative David Greenspan. I promoted you there for a moment. <laughs> uh, David Greenspan, thank you, thank you for joining us. And uh, we'll be talking thank to you. you again soon. Thank, thank you. you. And uh, we're going to take a short break. Don't go away You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. I can't get no t- I
2: can't get no Welcome back to Cleveland,
0: Nick Phillips with you. Another segment of the Advocate. In the uh, next two segments, we're going to talk about something a little different than coronavirus for a change. We're going to be talking about some of the treasures we have right here in uh, Northeast Ohio, especially in the Cleveland area. And uh, to help us talk about uh, some of our treasures here in the Cleveland area, is uh, longtime resident, family resident, and author Kip Whipple. Kip, thank you for joining us tonight.
1: Uh, yes, thank you for having me on uh, on board, and I'm always excited to talk about Cleveland and its uh, special uh, features.
0: Well, it, it is. It's, it's so nice to have you here because talking about things that are so close to us. I know uh, over the last weeks we've all been hunkering down here in our homes trying to avoid getting infected by the virus. But, you know, we can still go out and about, and we can look at things here locally, and uh, there's so much here. There's so much rich history here. And uh, you've been able to put it together and uh, you put it together in a book called Cleveland's Colorful Characters. But, you know, I've, I looked at the book and thank you for sending me a copy of it. It's, it's more of a history book of Cleveland and uh, it talks about interesting people, but also interesting places. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you came to uh, do this project.
1: Sure, sure. Um, I'm come from a long, uh, old uh, Cleveland family, the Garings, and I'm a seventh-generation Clevelander, and I've always had great pride in the city because the family's always told such great stories about it. More recently, I've become friends with the uh, descendants of the Mather family, and they knew I was doing some writings on Cleveland, and they asked me to write a book on their family, and they literally gave me a stack of books, 36 inches high, and I read every one of those books and I put together a couple chapters on the Mather family. Um, many things I have in those chapters, the Mather family, the descendants did not know, so it was news to them, too. And this in, includes the Ireland family, the McMillan family, and uh, quite a few others that uh, are still here in the Cleveland area. And then uh, the second chapter, I had to put something in on the Van because if people know of them in Cleveland, all they know about are the Terminal Tower and Shaker Heights, but they were also literally the largest railroad owners in the country, and they were the basis for the book The Great Gatsby. So I wanted to make sure people understood those two things. And the third chapter is on Mr. Magoo, because he's always been a family favorite, and the fact he's from Cleveland and most people don't realize that. I said, oh, he's got to be on the third chapter.
0: You've got to get that done. Well, the, the Mather family is
1: an interesting family,
0: because and uh, as you point out in your book, the Mather family goes back into uh, the earliest days of, of Ohio, and uh, many of us have heard, obviously, of this part of Ohio being part of the Connecticut Western Reserve, and uh, going back to the uh, or actually early 1800s. Uh, as you went through the 36 inches of books from the Mather family, uh, can you just give us a, a short, quick, sort of... Uh, so oh, summary of how far back do the Mathers go, and what have they touched here that's still around today? For example, Case Western Reserve, and that kind of thing.
1: Right. Okay. Uh, the Mather family goes back. If you remember the name Cotton Mather, sure. Cotton class. Mather. They are descended from the Cotton Mather family, and Cotton Mather founded Yale University. His father was Increase Mather, and he helped found uh, Harvard University. And their descendants then came to Cleveland, Ohio, as part of the Connecticut Land Grant Company. And they sold their land holdings when they discovered iron ore up in the um, Michigan area. And so they really got into iron ore mining in the 1830s, 1840s. And um, we're shipping it down to Cleveland to make um, horseshoes and other iron pieces And then they realized that they were spending uh, a lot of money shipping this stuff, so they got into the shipping business also. So their two main businesses were mining and shipping, and they became the largest ship owners on the Great Lakes. So what they did with those proceeds was uh, do quite a bit with Case Western. Uh, There's quite a few buildings in the Case Western Reserve area. Um, with their name on it. They also put money into the Art Museum, the Natural History Museum, and I had an article, and it's called Cleveland's Intellectual Infrastructure, because we have many world-class institutions here in Cleveland that people don't appreciate, and many uh, had their genesis with the Mather family.
0: That's such a fascinating story. Uh, We talked about Case Western Reserve. I note that... um, Case Western Reserve started in Hudson, Ohio, did it not? And, and how did that change from there to here?
1: That was actually part of the Mather family also. And it was a massive stone that brought Western Reserve University to uh, Cleveland, Ohio, because he knew a big city needed a good, uh, a great university. And so a stone paid uh, $500,000 to create uh, a building in his son's name, or Western Reserve University and then he gave $500,000 to um, set up their endowment and I think today they're one of the few universities that has over a billion dollar endowment but Amasa Stone, his daughter was uh, Flora Stone and she married uh, Sam Mather and she was Flora Stone Mather and that's why I say the Mather family has to do quite a bit with bringing uh, Western Reserve here, because it was Florence Mather's did, uh, father who did that.
0: You know, I, I go back uh, you know, many years thinking about being over at Case Western Reserve, and uh, the street called Adelbert, and there's an Adelbert Hall. Uh, what, there's a story with the Mather family concerning that name.
1: That was uh, because- uh, Stone's son, and he was at Yale University, and he drowned um, in 1865. And so that really impacted uh Massa Stone and he named uh the school Massa Stone or um oh gosh what was his son's name um of Delbert he named it Delbert Hall after his son Delbert's uh Stone
0: It's interesting because the the word Adelbert the only place I've ever heard it and ever you know Looked at the spelling of it has been in association with uh, Case Western Reserve. You mentioned Van Swyergens and uh, them being the largest railroad owners at the time. Uh, they they developed um, well Shaker Heights, I believe, and uh, the Rapid Transit as we know it still today. Right. They do these people know each other, the Mathers and the Van Swyergens, back in those days.
1: They did, but um, the Van Swyergens were very private people. Uh, the Mathers were very uh, quiet people as well, so they were in sort of different circles. Um, the Van Swearingens um, were rags-to-riches guys. They were dirt poor growing up, so they never really were part of that Cleveland society. But then they came to surpass the wealth of the Mathers and everyone else. So uh, the one Van Sweringen brother did work for Cleveland Cliffs, so he did work for the Mather family. And... Um, But other than that, there really wasn't that much contact between the two families.
0: In looking at your book, you have a lot of pictures uh, in it, which is great, because uh, even though the history of the Mathers and Cleveland go back prior to the uh, invention of photography, uh, that in the early days of photography, you actually captured some of those photos. When did we start actually seeing photos?
1: Um, The first photos were, I think, daguerreotypes. And that was one thing that I did find. I think it was about um, 1848, 1845, maybe 1850. But there's one, Sam Mather's mother passed away from tuberculosis in about 1850, 1851. And I did find a daguerreotype of her, which was very um, surprising and pleased. The family did not know that daguerreotype existed, that photographic image. They did have a uh, painting of her. But to have a photographic image as well was very um, satisfying to them.
0: Yeah, I saw that little story where she was a 22 years old, gave birth to her child, and was never allowed to see the child. Is that how right? how that went?
1: Uh, tuberculosis. Her daughter, Kate, was born, and um, the mother passed away three months later. So it's a very sad story that to give birth to a child that, you know, able to hold or um, you know touch in any way and uh, but it saved i mean kate lived until 1939 so she was wise to uh, keep her distance from her the same way we're keeping distance from each other today with this coronavirus But good things come. that's from. true yeah well we're
0: we're, we're talking to kit uh, whipple a uh, longtime cleveland family person i mean his family goes back here in cleveland many many years and uh, he wrote a book called Cleveland's Colorful Characters, which uh, I think if you, you see the book and you want to uh, Google it and uh, get some photographs and so on, uh, locate places and you can make little day trips and uh, actually some exploratory trips around the Cleveland and Northeast Ohio area. Uh, we're talking to Kit uh, Whipple. We're going to be back. We'll be talking about Mr. Magoo and some of the other things here in Cleveland. So don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on The Advocate. We'll be back. Don't go away. Welcome back, Cleveland. It comes with you for our final segment of The Advocate for tonight. And we're talking to uh, Kit Whipple, a, um, a historian, a resident of Cleveland who has family ties going back many generations here in the Cleveland area. And he's the author of the book called Cleveland's Colorful Characters, which so the book is actually a lot more than that. I, I think it's the kind of books you want to keep in your car. And uh, if you're looking for somewhere to go and something to see here in the Cleveland area, uh, flip open a couple of pages and, and go out and uh, take a look at some of these historical buildings we have going back uh, to yesteryear, as they would say. Uh, so anyway, Kit, thank you again for joining us tonight. Enjoy having you.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. Pleasure to talk.
0: You now, During the break, we were talking a little bit, uh, and uh, we were talking about Cleveland back in the 1880s uh, and Cleveland being a city of wealth at the time. And you were sharing some statistics uh, with, with that as far as uh, how many rich people lived in Cleveland. And, and uh, Tell us about that.
1: Sure, sure. In the 1880 United States Census, we're going through another census this year, but in the 1880 census, there was a total, and the numbers are in the book, I can't remember off the top of my head, but let's say there was 90 millionaires in the country, 80 of them lived in Cleveland. And that's why they built unbelievably rich um, buildings, and we had such a forward-looking city because all the money was here, and they were all putting into new and uh, different technologies and things of that nature. So that wealth that was here, in many cases, still there is still here. The Mathers are still um, very, um, you know, wealthy as are other families, and there's a lot of money still in Cleveland, but it's much quieter now than it used to be.
0: Yeah, we we talked also a little bit about uh, a newspaper in Cleveland years ago called the Cleveland Leader. Uh, tell us uh, about about that paper for those who don't know it, and, and how was that tied into presidential
1: politics? Um, yes, uh, the Cleveland Leader was a uh, you know again Cleveland was a leader in the country, and the, Marcus Hanna was re- literally the richest man in the country at the time, and he lived here in Cleveland. And so he would do uh, different um, political things to get um, presidents elected and was literally known as the president maker. Marcus Hanna, if you talk to anyone in Washington or anyone that understands politics, they'll have real reverence for Marcus Hanna for all he did and for the Republican Party, for the United States, for presidents. Um, He and Teddy Roosevelt were not good friends, and in my research, I found it was most likely that Marcus Hanna was murdered, so that's something that was new. Um, no one else has ever reported that, but it's pretty strong evidence that he was murdered. I'm not going to say who murdered him, but he because he had many a- enemies, uh said he was well being one of them.
0: You know, when we talk about uh, the history, and uh, you and I talked earlier about the, the fact that uh, places like the Cleveland, well, places like the Leader Building that's still in Cleveland goes back to the old Cleveland Leader newspaper days over on St. Clair. But there's a lot of fantastic buildings here in the Cleveland area. And uh, you're telling me about <clears throat> one of the architects who was involved that has done a lot of wonderful things, uh, Schweinford, Mr. Schweinfurt. Tell us
1: about that. Yeah, Mr. Schweinfurt was actually the architect uh, for the... Um the Mather family, and it was interesting. I was uh, driving around town with one of the members of the Mather family, and I said, "You know, I don't like my chapter on the Schweinfurth. Just I tried to put something new and unique into every one of my chapters." And He goes, "Well, you know, he was blind in one eye," <laughs> and I almost drove off. Oh. Said, "No, I didn't know that. No one else knew that. So that's something that was discovered during uh, this." But he built the uh, bridges over uh, Martin Luther King Drive. He built uh, the Union Club a lot of the churches, a lot of Case Western buildings. I tried to photograph many of these buildings, put them in the, uh, the booklet. What's interesting is that rise in the 1880s, 1890s with these buildings, Schweinfurt put a lot of Tiffany glass into uh, his buildings. So I can honestly say that uh, Cleveland has the second largest collection of Tiffany windows in the country, behind only New York, and New York is where Tiffany was from. So that was um hmm something that we can all still enjoy, those beautiful windows and see them in different places.
0: Well, what are some of the buildings, some of the Schweinfurt buildings that are still around?
1: Um, I mentioned the Union Club. Um, I mentioned, oh, shoot, Um, there's a a massive stone uh, church at um, Case Western. There's the Floristone Stone Mather building at uh, Case Western. Uh, that's a dormitory. There's um, uh, literally about a dozen, um, no, more than a dozen. I'm trying to remember some of the other churches that he built and things of that nature. But he was um, very sort of gothic, and his house is also very interesting. That's on, I think, East 66. And I called him Cleveland's Castle Creator because many of his structures look like a castle and if you look drive by his house on E66, you will see it's built like a castle. So I just had to call him the castle creator.
0: So he, he was that. You know, one of uh, the uh, entertainers that are known for glue, and besides people like Bob Hope and so on, was a fellow named Jim Backus that you uh, might know as Mr. Magoo in the cartoon series back from the 50s, uh, as well as from the 1960s, the TV show Gilligan's Island. Uh, How did you come across Jim Backus and and his story?
1: Um, A friend of mine was a guy named George Landis, and George Landis grew up and lived his full life in uh, Brattnall, and Jim Backus also grew up in Brattnall, and they were friends growing up. And so he was always telling me stories about Jim Backus and Mr. Magoo, and um, he was also the millionaire on Gilligan's Island. And Jim Backus told George Landis many years ago that many of the stories he told or many of the lines from Gilligan's Island actually came from lines from his father and his father's friends. So that um, when you hear the millionaire on Gilligan's Island talking, he's talking with uh, knowledge of things he learned in Cleveland.
0: But what years was Jim ba- Backus active?
1: Oh, he was active. And when did
0: he pass away?
1: I think he passed away in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, but he was uh, oh, active from after World War II on. And Mr. Magoo um, was probably one of the most famous, you know, popular cartoons. He was getting fan lenders from the Queen of England about Mr. Magoo. Unfortunately, um, mm-hmm. due to p- political correctness, he's not... Um, uh, he's not on the air anymore, and we can't watch Mr. Magoo, but he was a very fun-loving, harmless guy. Here's the interesting thing. Mr. Magoo's character was based on a teacher at university school. And so um, I have a picture of that teacher, and that came from university school, believes that very strongly, and people that knew this teacher said, yes, he was a Mr. Magoo. So.
0: Really? So he sort of was a was character for it? Sounds right. like... Um, watching uh, Seinfeld episodes and trying to figure out which character is Larry David uh, in right, uh, yeah. real life kind of a thing. But right. uh, but what is your next, uh, your, your next venture, your next project?
1: Okay, well, one of the chapters in my book is on Camp Cleveland. Mm-hmm. And, oh,
0: yes, okay.
1: And Camp Cleveland um, was in University Heights. What was Camp now, Cleveland? Right, Camp Cleveland had 20,000 men in 200 buildings, and no one's ever heard of it. So I'm trying to change that and give it uh, credit. But the interesting part is University Heights in 1862 is not where it is today. University Heights in 1862 was in Tremont. And that's why you have Professor and Literary Avenue. And I actually have an image in the book of the Cleveland Institute that was down there. It was down there at the Gospel Press location. It was later torn down when the Gospel Press was built. But that was the original University Heights. When John Carroll moved out to a town called Idlewood, they renamed the town University Heights. And that's, um, but that's the original University Heights was down there. My father and I. So had Camp, a, yeah, go ahead. My father and I had a, a historic plant, plaque put down there many years ago for Camp Cleveland.
0: So Camp Cleveland was down in the Tremont area, actually.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: And that's the American Civil War uh, back in the 1860s, where, where that was. 1862 um, to
1: 1865, yes.
0: My goodness. Well, Kip Whipple, or Kip Whipple, we're, um, we're happy to have you talking about Cleveland, and it gives us something to look forward to. When the weather breaks and it becomes <laughs> uh, summertime out here, I'm going to keep your book with me. and going to keep it in the glove compartment of the car <laughs> or somewhere right. in the car and uh, go out and match up the pictures. You have these old 1800s pictures with the places that are still there. But anyway, thank you so much for joining us tonight and and telling us all about uh, Cleveland's colorful characters and colorful history that we've had here in Cleveland. A lot to see. Thank you for joining us.
1: Uh, Thank you for having me, and uh, hopefully it generates more interest, more pride in our area. And I have to say this. If anyone has ever heard Cleveland called a mistake on the lake... Please, all you have to do is respond with, at least we have a lake.
0: Oh, we have a lot of good things here in Cleveland. It's uh, turning out to be one of the best locations in the nation, right? Right. Thank you so much. And (laughs) thank all of you for listening. Uh, We're going to be back next week, same time, same station, so between now and then, have a great week. Good night.
1: And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset Sat and drank my fresh mint tea Nothing to do until morning And only my mind